0: You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit
1: oaksbk.church. Okay, our teaching text this morning is Exodus 15, 22 through 26. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they claimed to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There, the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his degrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Lindsay Reyes. I'm one of the elders here at Oaks. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is such an honor to be speaking with you guys today, and we're just so glad you're here. So glad. It is nice to see a full house. Amen. Um, we are in a series called Hello I Am, and in the introduction to the series, Patrick spoke about the importance of names and how they are the oldest form of storytelling. Um, now, I'm not a preacher, so I just want to go ahead and say thank you to my friends uh, Patrick and Gemma, uh, our old friend Tyler and his friend Bethany, because everything I'm about to preach to you has come from their wisdom and their heart, and I'm leaning very much on on their words, so thank you, because I'm not a preacher. I'm a third-grade teacher. (laughs) I teach third grade in Brooklyn, yeah. (laughs) Oh, thanks. I love it. Um, But it's funny, because as Patrick was talking in that introductory uh, sermon about the importance of names, I thought, oh my gosh, yes, we kind of, uh, we, we know this as teachers. So like I have a tradition, uh, the first week of school, usually the second or third day where, uh. We all gather together, and I have the kids say their names. Um, they go around, and they say their first name and their last name, and they talk a little bit about, you know, sometimes they tell the story of how they got their name, um, and whatever else they want us to know about it. And it's so interesting. It's one of my favorite things, because you learn a ton. You learn what nicknames are off the table. <laughs> you learn, um, and, and but also I've, I've realized that more often than not, some kids come to third grade having never really had their name pronounced correctly it is incredible so it's so important and so like every year this year we gathered about the second third day of school and we do this thing now all the kids had shared but there was one kid that I kind of was on the fence I didn't want to put him on the spot his name is Kibo he's one of my favorites. We do have favorites, by the way. Sorry, <laughs> You know it. And um, Kibo had just moved to Brooklyn from Sweden, and he knew two words, toilets and pizza, <laughs> which is arguably enough to kind of get by in, in, in New York, right? <laughs> um, but that's, All he knew, and he hadn't really said much. He hadn't really come up to talk to me. He was playing with friends a little bit, but he otherwise really hadn't said a whole lot, and so I didn't want to put him on the spot, so I just kind of go, and then we have Kibo, and we we moved on. Well, so as I was transitioning uh, to the next thing, he crosses the room. He comes up to me with a post-it, and he says, Miss Lindsay, Kibo means tall mountain. Oh, And then I just like wept. I'm "I'm sorry, I didn't mean to skip you. I I didn't know that he was probably rehearsing those words all night with that post-it that his mom had written for him. Kibo means tall mountain. He crossed the room to do that his first thing he's, he ever really said to us as a class because names carry weight. Names carry meaning. They carry identity. And so when God breaks through and says to the people of Israel in Exodus 15, I am Jehovah Rapha, I am the Lord, your healer, he's unlocking this part of himself so that he can be known for who he is among his people. Hey, I'm here, Israel, and this is who I am. I am the Lord, your healer. I am your Jehovah Rapha. So before we really jump in, I would love to pray for us. God, you are the one who sees us, who sanctifies us. You are our provider. You are our healer in the great I am. You are so much to us. I invite you, Spirit of God, to be in this talk today I empty myself of everything that is Lindsay, and I just invite you to invade. We invite you to break through. Would you break through our disappointments and our waiting? Would you stir up in us a faith to see you as Jehovah Rapha, our healer? God, would you ignite our hearts so we become a people who are not afraid to hope? We long for your presence above all else today. God, come and meet with us. Come, Holy Spirit. I am the Lord who heals you. So let's take a look at the word healer. After all, I am a teacher. Um, This is the first time in the Bible it's mentioned, by the way. And the rabbis had... Uh, they have a rule when they're studying scripture, and it's called the principle of first mention. And that's where you find the first time a word is mentioned in the Bible, and then that first mention sort of dictates how you interpret the rest, interpret that word for the rest of the scripture, rest of the story. And so for that reason, I want to take a minute to unpack some context here. Uh, around our teaching text. So this is early Exodus. If you've seen um, Prince of Egypt, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a great, it's a great movie. Um, at this point, the Israelites have escaped the hand of Pharaoh, and here's what they've seen God do so far. It's easy to read and kind of gloss over, but when you think about it, it's incredible. Here's what they, they have seen God do. They've seen him send 10 plagues on the Egyptians, the next one even worse than the one before it, They've lived through their first Passover, which is where God sent the 10th and final and worst plague, but they were passed over because they followed a very specific direction to put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, so they were passed over by the angel of death. They have then seen the, the waters of the Red Sea part and then fall back on the heads of their enemies, so they never have to see them again ever, and then they went and wrote a song about it, and they were singing that song right before we get to our text, so as we approach this moment, um, the moment of our teaching text, right, uh, Israel has left the Red Sea. They're, they're now on their journey, but they are soon without water. In fact, they've been wandering for three days without water. Now, I'm no doctor, but I have read online that the human, <laughs> the human body can only last about three to four days tops without dying of dehydration. So They were grumbling, they were worried, they were wandering, but they were also in some danger. They were in real danger. Can you imagine this? They are fearing for their lives. Where are you, God? Where are you? I've seen you do this. I've seen you move. I'm not gonna sing, but you know the song. You've moved the mountains, right? And it's easier for us to sing that, like, I believe you're gonna do it again, but when you're in it, they were fearful. So they're wandering, they're waiting, they're grumbling. God hears them. But let me back up before I tell you what God does. They actually find water, as Catherine read. They find water, but the water isn't drinkable. It's bitter water. Can you imagine hopes raised and then just plummet? You think, oh, he's provided. What? So then God does hear them. He he tells Moses, hey, go over there and get that log. Throw the log into the water. And then the water became sweet. It became drinkable, not just drinkable, but sweet and drinkable. So God hears, he answers, and in the text, it says that God set a statute for his people, meaning he set some rules about how the people of Israel were going to sort of operate in this relationship to him. Hey, this is who I am. I am the Lord, your healer. And then in verse 27, I don't know if we have it, the verse 27 at the end of our text, it says, then they came to Elim where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees and they camped there near the water. He met their need and then he provided them great rest. He meets them even in their grumbling and their scorn. He doesn't meet them in condemnation, but great love. And he leads them to what seems like a pretty sweet paradise for a while. And this is what I want you to know today, that we have a God whose name is Healer. It's not just what He does, it is who He is. It is who He is. I am Jehovah Rapha, I am the God who heals you. Now the first time I ever asked God to heal, I was probably about 13. Uh, My grandmother was recently diagnosed with cancer. And I remember one Sunday, the family was in town and we're all, we all went to church together and she was called up to be prayed for. It was a little country church and she was so beloved by this community. And I knew that. But more than that, I knew my grandma was beloved by God. I saw it. I saw it. Like when I would stay with her in the summers and get out of bed late at night and go see what she was doing. She was on her knees praying and weeping with Jesus over her family and over the world even a few years back, I was in Park Slope where I live and I saw a friend's mom who by crazy happenstance knew my grandmother from Georgia way back when. And she said, oh, Lindsay, your grandma was a special woman. When she sang in the spirit, the heavens opened. And I knew exactly what she meant because I would see that too. So here I am huddled up at the front of this tiny church. I knew that if this was going to happen for anyone, if this healing was going to happen, it would happen for my grandma, surely. And it even reminded me of like, because I, and I, it's one you know, you have those moments where if you close your eyes, you're there again. So if I close my eyes, I'm there, and I'm and it's so many people, I think the whole congregation was at the front of the altar, and you could hardly move. And it reminded me of that story that we're going to talk about later, the story in the Gospels where the woman said, "Well, if I could just touch the hem of Jesus' garment, I'll be made whole." And I just thought, in my twelve year old logic and my twelve year old faith, I thought, if I can just reach out and touch my grandma's dress, I think God's gonna honor that faith. I believe he's gonna heal her. And so I moved so I could see her and she was right there and I just grabbed and I held on to her dress as they prayed and they pleaded for God to heal her. And she did get her healing, but later that February when she got it in heaven, about six, late, six years later, I was a sophomore in college, and I was recently diagnosed with an autoimmune disease that was super rare, that was a mystery to a lot of doctors, and it was ravaging my body. It was attacking my lungs. It was attacking my kidneys, my sinuses, my skin, and my joints. I remember I even had to go home for a semester because I remember getting up out of my bed in my dorm room and just falling down on the ground because my legs couldn't carry the weight, and no one really knew what it was, and we were Months and months of tests and medicines, trying this and that. And we go visit my family in Georgia. And as they do in country churches, they will call you out and say, you, come get prayer. And you you can't say no. (laughs) So I did. And here I am in the same church being prayed for by the same people who prayed for my grandmother. Now, I can't tell you a day or a month all i know is in the next 5 years it was just gone <laughs> it was just gone and even, and i do see a rheumatologist who keeps up with me and i see her once a year and i just saw her a couple weeks ago and just last thursday she sent me a note hey lindsay your labs look great even that marker that's negative the marker that shows that i have the thing it's negative it's amazing. Praise God. And I don't ever want to think that that is a little thing. That is amazing. Like I I can walk just fine. No rashes, no coughing, nothing. I was prayed for at the same church by the same people with the same spirit of God living inside them with very, very different outcomes. And it's important to start here because healing is not simple. It's incredibly awe-inducing and breathtaking when it happens. And then it is gut-wrenching and personal and really messy when it doesn't happen. And I know you know that, but I just need, to, I just need you to know that I know that too because I've lived it and I'm living it. Why this and not now? Why this and not that? Why then and not now? Why him and not her? This author, Jordan Sang, says, Peter's mother-in-law was healed as soon as Jesus took her hand. But the 10 lepers didn't experience their healing until after Jesus had sent them away. Jesus healed a servant's ear by touching it, but the hemorrhaging woman was healed when she sneaked up on Jesus and touched him. Jairus' daughter was resurrected from death immediately when Jesus called her, but the blind man in Bethsaida needed Jesus to touch him twice before he was healed. Jesus ordered a man to stretch out his withered hand and the man was healed as he tried the impossible, but the centurion's servant was healed over a considerable distance just by Jesus' word. The paralytic lowered down to Jesus through the roof was first forgiven of his sins and then healed, But but when Jesus healed the man born blind, he assured his disciples that sin played no part in the affliction. Jesus first delivered the hunchback woman from a demonic spirit of infirmity and then touched her spine to heal it. But this Canaanite girl wasn't even present when Jesus delivered and healed her through a proclamation to her mother. Jesus distributed healing through touch,
1: commands,
0: and declarations. Sometimes he applied saliva, sometimes mud, sometimes just touching his cloak was enough. See, there's no biblical formula for healing and I don't want you to think that's what this talk is at all because I don't have the secret. I just want you to know that even though it's all a great mystery, God doesn't just heal, it is his identity, he is a healer. And I pray that today that God stirs in us a desire also for the gift of healing because a life in the Holy Spirit and a life walking with Jesus means a life that bears witness to healing. And I also want you to know that healing starts with hoping. Healing starts with hoping. I'm going to grab water. We're going to look at the life of Jesus as healer. Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. He's the visible image. So I always love to look at Jesus and see how was he a healer. So we're going to read from the Gospel of Mark, and some people call this the tale of two daughters. We have um, Jairus and his daughter, and then we have the bleeding woman. We're going to touch on both of those people today. So Mark 5, 21 through 42 says, when Jesus had again crossed over the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus, he came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she may be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Now, this is our scene. A large crowd is gathered. Now, surely everyone has gathered to see Jesus because they have a need and they're hoping that that need is going to be met. And then among these people is a leader named Jairus. And Mark says he's the ruler of the synagogue. So that means Jairus is like the local pastor. He's known, he's loved, he's prayed for probably everyone in that crowd. And yet here he is, just a desperate father among them who's faced with losing his little girl to a terminal illness. After a life dedicated to God, he found himself more desperate than ever for him. Like no parent should ever have to bury their child, but Jairus was about to. So here we have the most prominent leader in their circles pleading with Jesus but this time on behalf of himself and his family. Come, put your hands on my daughter. Jairus knows what it is to hope. Hope is all Jairus had, and yet hope is the starting place of his daughter's healing. See, healing always starts with hope. Hoping has a way of revealing our humanity and our dependence, it makes us vulnerable, it causes, calls us towards risk and the belief that maybe, just maybe, something will change this time. And it is not easy. Hope is risky because you're opening yourself up to the reality of disappointment. And yet, it is a risk worth taking because it also opens us up to the possibility for healing. Now, there is a, a pattern of hope in the Bible in the Gospels, where, they, where healing always begins with this vulnerable risk of hope. Because without hope, think about it, the blind beggar never screams out for Jesus as he walks by. Without hope, friends don't lower their paralytic friend on the rug down through the roof to Jesus. And without hope, a desperate local pastor doesn't plead for the life of his little girl. It all starts with hope. If you want to know what healing feels like, you first have to know what hope feels like. I did steal that from Tyler, but it was too good. (laughs) You only need to flip through the Gospels to know that healing was a marker of Jesus's presence. And in order to understand healing, and before we can even move on, we have to ask the question, why does Jesus even heal at all? Why does he heal Jairus's daughter? Why does he heal at all? Why does God introduce himself very early on in the story to the people of Israel as, I am the Lord, your healer? Well, one thing about our story, our collective story, as children of God, one that sets us apart from most all other major religions, is that it starts with good. It starts with perfection. See, we know from the early in Genesis that God created a world without pain, conflict, no insecurity, no disease, no scarcity. It was one marked by un, an unbroken union that was meant to last forever. But as you may know, by Genesis 2, the world... Now, today's age, that, in today's time, that word can feel like prickly sin. Like it carries with it this mutated meaning that it means, oh, someone's poor moral decisions. But I would love to try to put very simply what I think a biblical definition of sin is. I think sin is anything outside of the perfection we were created to enjoy with God forever. That's pretty good. Sin is that childhood trauma, the church baggage, relational strife, it's scarcity, it's sickness. It's that paralyzing anxiety you just cannot get out from underneath. It's the way we hurt others either unintentionally or intentionally. Sin is the source of pain. It's the source of suffering and death. It's sin. And it's not just a Christian idea either. If you are walking on this earth, you cannot escape any of those things. And it's why we need healing. Healing is the putting back together of the things that are broken and the crashing in of the way things were meant to be. We've heard in church that Jesus forgives sins. But honestly, if that's all, If that's all he does, I don't know if that is a compelling enough story to give your life away to. Praise God we are forgiven, but there's got to be more than that, right? There's got to be more. The biblical story is not just the forgiveness of sins. It is one that details the reality of suffering, but then actively disrupts that brokenness at its core and restores the world to the life it was always meant to be. God's whole mission is to get us back, to bring us back into that union. And I think my aunt knew that when I was in the car on the way to my grandma's funeral. It was, just felt easier to ride with her than to ride with my mom, who was just completely shattered. And I was also able to be honest with my aunt, and I knew she was always honest with me. And so I got up the courage, and I just said, why do you think God didn't heal grandma? And as if she'd already been grappling with that, she just so calmly and so lovingly and really wisely said, well, Lindsay, even Lazarus eventually died. And I've never really talked about that moment, even with her, but I just kept thinking about that this week and preparing for the talk, and I feel like my aunt knew this. She knew that we were not created to live in the world we live in now, right, right? So it, it, is, it is good and it is right to have tension with this brokenness and this darkness and sickness. It is right because we were, not, we were not created to live in the world we live in now. And we know that even Jesus himself had tension. Even Jesus himself wept over the loss of his friend, Lazarus. We know what it's like. He knew, he knew what it was like to look in the face of what is and what should be and to break over it. There's this author, Elliot Shalito, and he, he was, he, he's sort of given a commentary on this passage of, about Lazarus and Jesus' response. Because we know that response well, right? Jesus wept. We know that verse. A lot of us know that verse well. But he says in verse 33, or actually, let, can we go back and I'll read the first one? I'm sorry. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Jesus wept. And Edward Shalito says that in verse 33, when Jesus saw Mary and the others weeping, it says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. But the original Greek there, it means to quake with rage. And then in verse 38, as Jesus came to the tomb, it says he was deeply moved. Well, the original Greek word there means almost to roar or to snort with anger like a lion or a bull. So the best translation would be bellowing with anger he came to the tomb. This must at least mean that he was actually yelling out in anger in response to the wrongness of death. Even Jesus felt that. He was fully God, yet he was fully man. I just want to say like if you have those feelings right now you are not alone so back to our biblical story the one we are living in right now living out right now is all about God's mission to restore the world to the way it was meant to be he is the God who sees us the God who provides the God who sanctifies the great I am he is our healer That's why when King David prayed for a savior, he prayed like this, praise the Lord my soul and forget not his benefits who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. That's why when Jesus showed up claiming to be that savior, he says, go back and tell John, go back and tell John. Tell him, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Yeah. Go tell John. (laughs) That's why at the end of the story is a world of both forgiveness and healing. In Revelation, it says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Healing at its fundamental core is a confrontation with darkness. When Jesus heals, he's not doing in like a spiritual way what antibiotics do for the body. Oh, no, no. It is a declaration of war. It is bigger. He's mocking the enemy. He's coming after his children with a love so pure that it breaks even every... every stronghold of the enemy. With every healing, Jesus is poking a hole in that
1: darkness.
0: (laughs) Healing is not a passive activity. It is an active affront to the work of the enemy, which means healing is confronting to the enemy, but it's also confrontational. To know healing, you have to be willing to put your faith in action. And you have to be willing to be disappointed, to confront the hard questions, and to go on living without satisfying answers. Aunt Gaga, why didn't why didn't God heal Grandma? I still ask that question. I didn't for thirty years, but God's finally told me it's okay to ask. <laughs> ask Him, right? To know healing, you have to be willing to put that faith in action, and that is so much harder to do than it is to say, and I recognize that, but we can be certain that our faith is not in vain because we know one thing. He is making all things new. He is in this day or the one to come. He is making all things new. That e- oh, I already said that part. I was excited I got there early. <laughs> Yes, we know the promise that all this suffering will be done away with once and for all. Praying for divine healing is also not a naive not a naive thing. It is confrontational. It is bold and it is brave. It means staring long and hard into the darkest corners of the human condition. It's also not a wild act of the charismatic It's a radical and it's an offensive weapon and it's one that only the brave will pick up. Sometimes I think we could live our whole lives in church and not really put our faith in action and be brave. Healing is also about waiting. Remember Jairus, our local pastor? He waits. In the gospel, we see that he's waited 12 years till his daughter is is on her deathbed Can you imagine how many healing prayers he made over her while she was sleeping? How many folks from the church came over and laid their hands on her? He also waited on the shore for Jesus to come. So I think to myself, how many days did he just stand there looking out at the shore to see, is there a boat coming? Is it him? Jairus also waits through someone else's healing because there's another person in the crowd that day. Do you remember the bleeding woman? Well, there's a woman in the crowd, and she'd gathered when, that local pre, when the local pastor was making the scene. Please just put your hands on my daughter. She was someone who wasn't on her deathbed. She wasn't 12. She's not 12 years old. She's lived a long enough life to justifiably call it a full life, full enough at least. But that hemorrhaging woman, she has been waiting too. In verse 25, it says, and a woman was there who had, su- who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. 12 years, there it is again. All those doctors, all those waiting rooms, all those pharmacies and the prescriptions, she must have tried everything. And she'd spent all she had out of that desperation. Healing is waiting with all its ups and downs. And so much is lost in one in the waiting because during that time we have to decide how are we gonna position ourselves? What's going, how are we gonna position ourselves in that? And And I'm gonna pose to you a couple ways. I think laughter is part of that story. I think back to our Israelites who are wandering, you know, they love to grumble, rightfully so, but they did a lot of grumbling. But can you imagine the jokes and the snickers and the smirks? Oh, yeah, we've got water, but now you can't even drink the water? I mean, I bet they, I bet they had some things to say. Laughter is part of the story, but there's an earthly laughter and a heavenly laughter, and this earthly laughter out of, out of disappointment, out of scorn, this is not new, it's shown up before, too, if you remember Abraham and Sarah when Abraham was promised to be the father of many nations and then he marries a woman who can't have children. There was laughter there. They laughed not to be disrespectful, but just realistic and from a place of real hurt and disappointment. And think back to the Israelites again. Like I, I'm kind of glad they didn't include those jokes, but I'm sure they were there. And there's even laughter in the story with Jairus. In verse 39, when Jesus said, the child is not dead, but sleeping, it says they laughed at him. I almost hadn't caught that until this week. They laughed at Jesus. And it's not unfaithful and it's not sinful. It's just real. It says, I've opened myself up. I've prayed. I've hoped. And it snickers at how wild it would be if the miracle actually did happen. They're not skeptics. They're just grieving as best they know how. Earthly laughter is part of the process, and it's in response to those questions, well, why would he heal now and not then? This and not that. But there's also heavenly laughter. The heavenly laughter, that's what probably happened when Peter, James, and John walked out of the room after Jesus said, little girl, get up, and Jairus' daughter got up, fully healed, fully whole. And I bet Jesus was kind of following them with like a, a supernatural, like, you know, chuckle. A 12-year-old girl gets up a bit groggy from a long nap. And then I love what Jesus says. Give her something to eat. It's like Jesus was saying, look, I'm not going to tell you how to celebrate here, but you might want to cook some stuff. Give her some food. Have a little party. It's probably all the town was talking about. That is heavenly laughter. If you've ever been around your friends as they've just had words spoken over them to heal their soul, and I, it's only happened to me a few times but when that laughter, when that heavenly laughter breaks out, it is like heaven has opened. It is filled with joy. And I believe with everything inside of me that that is where we are headed, that God wants to bless us with some heavenly laughter and unleash joy as he heals us and restores us. So I wanna close with this. Is the Spirit speaking something over you today? Are you in need of healing? There's physical healing. You know, God cares about your body from chronic illness to just mild irritation and everything in between. Healing is a sign of the kingdom to come. I believe he wants to heal. Or what about emotional healing? An aching or broken heart or an anxious racing mind that just won't let up? a broken relationship or a numbed imagination, lost dreams from what's happened in the last few years. God cares about all of it. There's spiritual healing. Maybe there's been a disappointment that you never quite recovered from in your past, a spiritual abuse from a leader or friend in your community. Maybe like the bleeding woman, you have suffered under the care of others. And that keeps you watching rather than participating. See, sometimes God heals slowly by his presence and sometimes in an instant with his power. But he's a healer. I am the Lord, your healer. He will always draw near. And that is what we are certain of. So are you in need of healing? Today when we give the invitation, the prayer ministry is gonna be up here and the elders are gonna be at the front to pray for you because the Bible does say if any of you is in need, call for the elders of the church and they will pray for you, lay lay hands on you and anoint you with oil. We're gonna do that for you today. So come, if you're in need of healing, come. Now I also have an invitation to those of you who have experienced the healing rest. Jesus led, God led the Israelites to the rest in the shade of Elim, that paradise where he healed them, he binded the broken hearts, he he set them right, he provided for them. Some of you know that feeling. He's done that for you. You've seen Jesus push back the darkness in your life. Do you know that the powerfully healed become powerful healers? The scandal of Jesus wasn't his power. It was his wounds. It was by his wounds we are healed. The scandal of the early church wasn't their success. It was their wounds. It was that they were just like everyone else. It was their commonness. And the scandal of the Holy Spirit isn't power. I mean, that is a given. It is powerful. But the scandal is the power that is hidden inside the ordinary people. That is the scandal hidden away in ordinary, wounded people who've seen the light break through. What makes you an excellent candidate today to be used by God is not your gifting. It is not your might or your power. It is the spirit. There's no magic formula. It is by his spirit, the powerfully healed become powerful healers. So come and be healed or become. I would love it if there was a holy mess in here today where people are coming up for all sorts of healing and then you feel healed and then you cross the room to lay your hands on another because you know what it's like to be crippled by anxiety but God has freed you so you cross the room to be an unanxious presence for your friend and you lay your hands on your friend and they are healed by the power of the spirit. What a beautiful, beautiful thing that would be. So come and become. Jehovah Rapha. I believe with everything inside of me, God, that you are going to heal broken hearts and broken lives and relationships and bodies today. I know you're going to do it. So Spirit of God, we say, unleash your presence and your spirit over your children. We long for the nearness of Jesus. Jesus, if all we get today is your nearness and your presence, that is enough. We should long for your touch. And enemy, I want to talk to you. You have no place here today in the name of Jesus. Where you have paralyzed people with anxiety or you have dashed hope, we say, in the name of Jesus, you have to go. God, thank you for what you're about to do. Thank you for already speaking into hearts right now. We love you. Come do what you do. Come be who you are. Come be our Jehovah Rapha. Come be our healer. So I just encourage you if God is speaking over you today and you know you're in need of healing or if you want the gift of healing, would you come up? Like, just like the song said today, like, don't be, soul, don't be shy. Jesus is here and he longs to meet with you. So as we worship, yeah, as we worship, just meet with him.